Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shri Bhavani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Fred Singer. Fred is the CEO of Echo360, which is the first video platform designed to foster active, engaged, and personalized video-based learning. He's an internet pioneer and entrepreneur whose career and philanthropic activities have spanned a broad range of interests from education, media, arts, science, and veteran affairs. So Fred, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Great, thanks so much for having me. Very excited to be on the show. So you have a pretty storied career at the intersection of internet innovation and education. Would love to hear more about your career journey in your own words. I'm originally Canadian, so I, I grew up there, was on my way to being a lawyer, and got recruited to the U.S. with Bain and along the way went to Harvard Business School. And in the middle of school, I, I was writing a paper on the third industrial revolution, which was all about technology. Keep in mind, this is before the internet actually existed. And a light bulb hit me that, you know, there was going to be this big change. And so I ended up going to the Washington Post in the very early days and was one of the founders of WashingtonPost.com. So that's, I really caught the internet early. And what'll be relevant maybe for your listeners is that a lot of what's going on in the newspaper industry actually translates very well to what's going on in education today. But I started that up and then I was fortunate at that time, there was a little company down the road called America Online and they were bringing the internet and kind of transforming how media was taking place. And again, managed to catch that wave as well. So was there during kind of the big boom years before the merger with Time Warner took place. And so really got to see multiple industries transformed and be in the middle of it. As I kept kind of chasing interesting disruptive movements, I came across a fellow named Masayoshi Sun, who's the CEO and founder of SoftBank. And he brought me to Asia in the early 2000s, long before the Chinese market had opened up but when the internet broadband was taking off. And so I was his personal advisor for about five or six years. So I was traveling in Asia, but really got to see this huge impact of, again, another set of continents and another set of industries being disrupted. So I really had a chance to you know, see these cycles over and over again, which kind of led me to my last chapter, which is education. During that time, I had a son with learning difficulties, and I began to see the the juxtaposition of this fancy technology being used for advertising and dating and for media. And then I would go to my son's school and it looked like the 1950s. And so like a lot of internet entrepreneurs just began to scratch my head why on earth education was so far behind. And I know you have a large healthcare audience as well. And I would say Along the way, most of my comments that apply to education actually apply in great measure to the healthcare industry. So there's a lot to click on there. And before we go into Equi360 and, and do a deep dive into your experience with them, I did want to pause and say, so you know, your time at AOL is pretty interesting to me. One of our large investors is Graycroft and specifically a partner there named Alan Patrikoff, who um, invested in AOL early on. And I met Steve Case last year at the Graycroft yeah. Summit. Alan also brought in a guy named Greg Coleman, who's an advisor and investor yep. in Osmosis, who also has a media background like you. He started co-founded the Huffington Post and then sold that to AOL, which after you had probably already left there. But I would love to, you know, hear more about your thoughts on like what you alluded to this, the similarities between like media and education. 
Sure. So as your readers might be aware, Steve Case and uh, Ted Leonsis are big investors in our company, again, because I think they saw the same set of transitions going on. But I, I think what's really maybe the most direct comparison is when I was in the newspaper industry, online was just coming on board. And so newspapers were the center of the media world back in the early 90s. And and so when online came about, and it was really Steve Case kind of leading the charge, the first thing they thought of doing was to go, okay, well, we, we kind of know this online thing's coming. Why don't we just take the newspaper and put it on this computer and people can read it and we're online. And that's what they did. And, and the analogy is, if you're listening, is that's what schools are doing today in education. You know, that's what Zoom is. Zoom is taking the lecture that was in a traditional classroom and kind of vomiting it back into online. And so you're communicating the lecture, but all you've done is do a one-for-one -one comparison. And the lesson I would tell people to take from that and why I think we're so early in the chapter for education is that the big winners in media weren't the newspapers. The big media's and winner are like, what are we listening to? Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, because people like to communicate. And so going back to the early 90s, what was the first signal of a change was when AOL popped up because the chat rooms were going crazy. So while the newspapers were struggling with, you know, should we allow readers to comment? You know, it's, it's not already vetted. The online guys were actually already down that road where they were letting people communicate. It's the same thing in education, which is when people learn when they interact with the content, with the students, with the teachers, the interaction is the learning. Just like in media, the interaction is the actual media experience now. And so, you know, again, one of the big lessons is that interactivity is at the core of it, but that's simply repurposing a classroom doesn't make any more sense going forward than it did for the newspapers to dump online content and magazines to dump online content and then assume the world's going to change. It didn't work that way. That's a really great analogy. And, you know, one thing I'll add to that is while the newspapers were seeing their demise, you know, because content was becoming commoditized and obviously the rise of Google and Facebook taking all the advertising revenue, Warren Buffett was investing in local newspapers largely because it was they were still profitable endeavors because people cared about their local news. And that was harder yeah. to replicate for large publications like the Washington Post or, or New York Times. And obviously, Facebook and these social media networks have done an even better job of making things hyper-local. They're so hyper-local that you're seeing exactly what your brother or your uncle are doing online at any given point. So Echo360 has done a, a pretty tremendous job. I, I know this from firsthand experience having used it, but also... At Osmosis, we have over 100 institutional clients, NYU and Kaiser Permanente. And more often than not, when I ask them what they use for asynchronous or synchronous video communications, a lot of them will say Echo360. So to our audience, most of whom are probably already familiar with the company, do you mind giving us a bit more background on the company and, and kind of what makes it different than other companies in the space? Sure. So the, the reason that I got into it was from a technology sense, what I realized is when a teacher and a student interact, that is the learning process. And the technology available at the time didn't help that process. So what every school has is called an LMS or a learning management system like Blackboard and Instructure. And they're, they're actually perfect. They're, they're the platform of record, but they're administrative tools. 
And, you know, in my language, they would have been what I used to call the Yahoo portal from the 1990s. They're kind of a place where you navigate, but you don't go deep. So what we began to think through was, well, when a teacher and a student interact, what do you need to do? So the first thing is it has to be video-based, which LMSs aren't. The second thing is you got to start focusing on the data and understanding what are those interactions, do you understand them? And the third thing is you've got to get engagement up. So back to my analogy around, you know, Twitter and Facebook is ultimately you have to find a way when a student and a teacher are either in class or out of class for them to interact more. And it turns out technology does that. So that's the kind of the basis of it. What makes us different is that we kind of amalgamated all the core tools of learning into one place. So most schools have five, six, seven, eight kind of tools out there, technologies to try to help. They might have a clicker. They might have a transcript thing. They might have a, a place to store video. They might have something to record lectures. And we came to the conclusion about four or five years ago that you needed this platform that did it all in one because it's too hard to train the professors. Students don't want to bounce between technologies. And if you think about big data, you can't capture interesting data if they're from different sources because it never normalizes. So again, all the core principles, but we're the only ones to really put it together and then think it not as a technology company, but think as a learning company. How does this actually make students learn better and teachers teach more easily? So that's what made it special. And, and you know, the results, particularly during COVID, have been outstanding just in terms of how the student learnings occurred. Yeah, and we'll get into COVID in, in just a minute, but I'm curious, like, so even before COVID, up until 2020, can you give us a sense of the size and scope of the company? Like, how many institutions, how many students have you guys reached? And then also, you know, you mentioned data a lot. You know, I think that's one of the things that's most interesting about online education in general is how do you use the data to personalize learning and then, you know, recommend other content, for example, based on what people are learning. And so we'd love to hear more about, like, how you measure success. Is it hours of video watch? Like, what are some of the KPIs or key performance indicators you, you all track? Sure. So we, we reach between two and three million students, depending on how the metrics define. So we're in 20 plus countries. We're particularly large in Asia and Australia and the UK and in Europe, UK and, and mainland Europe, also US and Canada and in the Middle East. So we're, we're global out of the gate probably have over a thousand schools and several hundred institutions. So, and of all types, there's not any type of institution. We go from Ivy Leagues to community colleges to health and science schools. So it, it really works across any venue, some high schools as well. So it's a pretty broad, broad-based. How we measure success is whether we improve learning. So pretty much across the board, when you put us in there, the engagement, which means the interaction between the teacher and the student will go up anywhere between 500% to 3,000%, which is just a crazy number. And the reason is we make it easier for students to take notes. We make it easier for them to ask a question. We make it easy for them to push a button and say, I don't understand if you want to have polling. So but by making everything available on your phone and computer, what we've learned and we know is students interact more. The more important thing is we also see a huge improvement in grade point average. So on average, we get about an 18 to 19% boost in grade point average. And the boost comes at the bottom. 
So what, what you learn kind of as a general theory is A students get A's because it really doesn't matter how you set it up. They know the system and they figure it out. And kids that don't do the work, don't do the work, but everything in the middle usually goes up about a grade because it makes it easier for them to ask questions. So to be specific, you may have a hard time listening in class or you may not have paid attention. You can simply go over what you just saw in class, go over at your own speed. English may or may not be your first language. We have automated transcripts so that if you don't like taking notes, instead of having to call somebody up, the system takes the notes for you and you can simply highlight them and go through them. Teachers have the ability to ask questions just like in class so that they can tell whether the students understand the concept. So all of that just allows for what is called blended or active learning. It is the one proven methodology that works. And all we've done is enable that in a really clean technical platform. That's a really great description. And that's exactly some of the stuff we've noticed when you work with, you know, I was in med school at Hopkins. The students there tend to be very good and overachievers and, you know, things don't make that much of a difference to their grades. But then you you get more and more students who are, you know, in the middle, as you mentioned, the large middle, like 95%, yep. 90%. And that's where you see the, the improvements. And so you mentioned COVID and I can imagine some major tailwinds. We've had like the CEOs of Chegg and Coursera and a number of other education tech companies on raise the line before talking about the tailwinds, how colleges and universities have had to switch to online learning very quickly. But then there's also headwinds. As you know, a lot of these colleges and universities have had to cut their budgets because enrollments are down and, and all sorts of other things are happening. Could you talk a bit more about specifically how COVID has affected your outlook at Echo360? You've mentioned a couple positive things, but pro and con. Yeah, absolutely. So Obviously, my view is COVID accelerates trends that already existed. So online was already on its way. What, what we've seen in, I think, phase one is called the emergency remote learning. It's back to my newspaper analogy. Schools didn't know what to do. Video conferencing was a way to replicate the class. And so what we know about kind of Zoom University is that it is a really good communication method, but not necessarily better learning. That's number one lesson we've learned. We've also seen that what's happened kind of with this phase is we've unbundled the university package. So when you really think about why people pay $75,000 for, you know, 50 to 75,000 in tuition, it's really for four or five things. It's first of all, kind of like a camp. You go to campus, my kids go there. It's really fun. It's a great experience. That part of the college process really works, but in, in COVID, it's missing. So now everything else is exposed. You also have, you know, clubs, sports, the other things that people do. And then you have the research, and then you also have the classroom. And what COVID exposed is the relative value of the classroom. And that's where higher education's facing a lot of trouble, because the truth is students have been having a hard time getting to class for a long time. You know, in we serve a lot of community colleges. A lot of times people can't get to class because they have work, they have jobs, they get sick, they have sports, everything. So, you know, what, what we're seeing is for the first time is schools have to figure out how to deliver a better education when the student or the teacher is not in class. And it's not always going to be what it is today where it's remote. What you're going to see is, oh, some of the kids are in class. Some of the kids aren't in class. Oh, it's a large lecture class with 300 people because that's cost effective. 300 people on a video conferencing system doesn't really work. How do we think about that? How do we think about learning differently? 
So I think what it did is we're in phase one. I think we've had a number of schools start to completely outfit their entire campus on a scale that we haven't seen. We do online learning, so we do a lot of that as well. We've had a lot of customers that have had budget cuts, so they're really desperate. But you know, I think going forward, we're gonna see budget cuts and schools are gonna to have to deliver better education. They're gonna to have to get their international students to be able to participate and they're not gonna get them all into class. And they're gonna to have to figure out a way to do remote and hybrid learning. And this is where we're gonna to get to phase two, which to me, back to my newspaper and analogy, where we start to get closer to when the second generation of media outlets came in and began to really think through the problem in a much more strategic way than what schools were able to do the, this round. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I mean, it, it reminds me of some of the stuff I've read and, and seen from Scott Galloway, who is also an NYU professor, like Greg Coleman and Greg introduced us yep. to him. He talks a lot about the unbundling of universities, including his own at NYU, and how you know if you can't replicate the in-person, the club, the research, all that other aspects, the incubator type environment that is a university, what truly is education? And, and there are many examples where like education could be delivered even better with better brands. Like Apple could create a, a design program and Coursera is sort of leaning on that a lot, as you know. Yep. How is Equa360 kind of like, has it, has it accelerated some initiatives that you all have been planning for a while? I know you've said it's accelerated some macro trends that were already in the works, but I'm curious that at Echo 360 specifically, are you doubling down in certain areas that are seeing more of those tailwinds and then maybe killing off initiatives that weren't? We obviously accelerating investment in online and hybrid learning. So when we think about the issues that schools faced, what COVID did was it exposed one type of online learning, which is everybody's out of class because there's a crisis. But what's going to happen is what happens when a student has a summer class? So let's say you're attending, I was just at American University, you're attending a class there now, you've gone back home and you wanna do a summer course. It's only one course. Currently, there's nothing set up for universities to handle one-off courses using the same platform as the major program. So what people do right now is they outsource to what's called OPMs or these kind of full service providers but they have to give up, you know, eight, 10 years of tuition. But 30 or 40% of students today actually take at least one or two online courses. So what we're focused on is making it completely seamless and cheap for our institution to either put on a summer course or do a full, full program themselves. And the current model and the price doesn't really work. And so we think we're uniquely positioned because we're integrated with all the core tools of a university like the LMS and their video conferencing system to allow schools to do that easily. So that's where our focus is and we're already doing it. Like we, we've just had tremendous success. Our clients are finding it very easy to do this transition with not, not the same type of complaints that other people have because it's already set up to do that. So that's what we're focused. We think our business, which was hybrid and online learning, that's just that's just accelerating and that the whole industry is about to kind of come together. That's really great to hear. You know, we obviously at Osmosis are hyper-focused on healthcare. We've seen a lot of tailwinds while retailers and finance and transportation sectors are shedding jobs. You know, we can't get enough of people in healthcare. You know, 12 of the fastest 20 growing professions in the U.S. are in healthcare, ranging from nurse practitioner to genetic counselor. And so we work a lot of healthcare students and healthcare institutions 
love to hear any any of your thoughts. Have you had to find when you go into healthcare institutions, which I know you have a number of them, does online hybrid learning have to adjust or can you basically use the same sort of infrastructure to deliver asynchronous or synchronous online learning? Yeah, so I would say the most heaviest users of our platform are med schools, nursing schools, veterinary schools, pharmacy schools. That's actually one of our core markets. The more intense the content, the better. A lot of students listen to their lectures at, you know, twice the speed because sometimes they also can't be there. So we haven't had to adjust anything. What we're just finding is bigger demand. What we are doing new is we've partnered with one of our institutions and we've actually creating courses now within partnerships. So we're working in the nursing area. We're going to be launching something around resiliency in the next quarter or so. So we we begin to view content as a critical ability and enabling our schools not just to deliver their own content, but now to begin to syndicate it and deliver it in other places. And so you'll be seeing a lot of activity there. And again, we think nursing was a particularly interesting area because we have so many customers who are in that space. But yeah, healthcare needs it. It has many of the same issues. And the pace at which new drugs come out, the pace at which learnings come out, do not fit the kind of long-term evergreen horizon of the way content's taught. So all the things we've talked about apply maybe five-fold in the healthcare field. So it, I think it, you're going to see huge changes and huge increase both in the type of content, but also in much more flexible delivery so people can learn when, when they need to learn with the time they have, whether it's on a treadmill, whether it's when they're studying, or whether they just want to catch up on something and it's just not being published in the university, but someone's kind of got something that's new. I couldn't agree more with you. I mean, this is definitely the type of things we see from our university partners in, in healthcare. I know we're coming up in time, so I had two last questions for you. The first is, what advice would you give to someone right now considering a career in healthcare or already partially on the way? towards that career about meeting the challenges of the COVID moment and beyond? So one of the things we've been working on is resiliency. So I think that this is, particularly in nursing, it applies because we've just been working in this category. But I think that there's so much change going on that the ability to adapt to that change and cope is going to be helpful. But what I'd say, just because I've over my experience, you see trends, remember the same trends in your healthcare career are going to affect you that have affected media that are affecting education, there is going to be time shifting. You know, 80 or 90% in education of all online is time shifted. Well, that's going to the same type of time shifting is happening in healthcare when people are able to do things from home, they're able to do them not synchronously. And being flexible around that is really important. I think location becomes less important, just like in healthcare and media. You no longer read your newspaper in the cafe all the time. You read it on your phone. You no longer have to learn in a classroom. You no longer are going to have to treat patients or do work always in one location. So I think that's there. And I think data is going to be really critical. I talked a lot about it here, but obviously with wearables and everything else, you're about to get to a whole new era. So I think the ability to be flexible because the healthcare system needs the leaders to be able to handle this next wave of technology and and not block it. And I think there'll be huge opportunities to people that know how to embrace the change versus stop it. Yeah, no, totally. My mom always used to tell me change is the only thing constant. And 
and several other raised line guests have have also encouraged our audience to think about how they fit in and how they can actually lead the change that we're going to see. My last question is, is there anything else you'd like our audience to know about Echo360, about you, about the macro trends that are happening as a result of COVID, et cetera? What I'd like everyone to understand is that the gap between where education is today and unlike a lot of industries, all the technology and tools exist to deliver much cheaper education, much more convenient education, and that there's, it's not like we're trying to discover DNA. It's most of the tools can be fixed or done in within a year. Online and hybrid teaching can be as good or better than traditional classrooms because you can do it on your own time. You can teach multiple ways. You can allow people to participate. So, you know, what I would say is that we are entering a period where I believe there's going to be this pretty big change. It reminds me of what I saw back in the day when I was in the newspapers and people thought that wouldn't change and it, it can happen fast. And I, I think this is going to happen, but we should not be content with where we are either in education or how healthcare uses some of these new technologies. Again, couldn't agree more with that. And it's funny you mentioned the we aren't trying to discover DNA. When I first was introduced to you by Steve Sloan and read your name, Frederick Singer, I was thinking of Frederick Sanger, who in 1977, oh, yeah. he, you've probably heard his name before, he discovered the Sanger method of DNA sequencing. Fred, I really appreciate you taking the time and obviously all the work that you're doing to raise the line and improve healthcare capacity through education at Echo360. Great. Well, thank you for having me and really appreciate the time to share something I'm very passionate about. Awesome. And with that, I'm Shiv Gulani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line since we're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.